Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast, brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Axis Entertainment, and your host of Media Mavens Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Joe Pirates. Hey, Joe. Hello, Sarah. Doing well on this Thursday. How are you doing? <laughs> Good. It cracks me up Tuesdays, Thursdays. This is always podcast yeah. days when I talk to you. <laughs> but I'm super excited because one, it's nice and sunny out. Two, our awesome guest is out here in um, sunny Southern California. We have Kevin Goff with us. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here with both of you. Now, you're a filmmaker, speaker, and Sometimes actor is what we talked about. <laughs> yeah. But you're also the great, great grandson of Hattie McDaniel from Gone with the Wind. Great, great. Three uh, greats. Did I just I think younger? Go ahead, Joe. Do, do it, Joe. I'm going to say great, great. Hattie McDaniel was his great aunt. There you go. Great that, great, that'll great. do. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great. I mean, two greats, you're all one great. One great. Um, Grand, well, grandnephew. Grand grandnephew. Great, great grandnephew. Yeah. Okay. You know what? I'm not going to hear record again. You're just great in general, but being great, I, great is like they call New York, New York, New York. Cause it's so great. They name it twice. So you're going to be a great, great for the show. Right on. Welcome to you know, it. It's, it's late on the Thursday and you coffee. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm in San Diego right now. And, um, the weather's been, for the most part, very nice and a little uh-huh. overcast and gloomy with some rolling winds traveling southeast by. Are, are, no, you, anyway, are you a sometimes weather anchor? Because that was pretty good. <laughs> I, I want to I go to the moon and do a DJ set and do like a uh-huh. night show, you know, and call it, you know, celestial body um, night grooves or something. I don't know. Night grooves. I like that. Night, night grooves. Oh, my God. Yeah. Joe's a sportscaster and he has that Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Sunday, Sunday. Yeah. And then you yeah. have your, between the two of you, this is going to be good. Yeah. Um, we're going to cover weather, sports, and whatever else we can on this. Good. Well, let's chat. So, Kevin, wait, you're a filmmaker. You're a speaker. Give us a little history. Like, my main reason why I was excited to have you on, we have kind of talked to a few great, great guests on our show uh, and going around down the road of, you know, this whole thing with politics, Black Lives Matter. We had Ron G on. We really had some really good things about heroism. And we had a lot of conversations, I think, with Tani Katain. Really, everything kind of brought us back to where we are right now, COVID, politics. And the fact that you, you know, I love Gone with the Wind. There's such rich history about her right now, winning the award, not being able to show up at the premiere and anything. She really set an industry bar when it comes to doesn't matter the color of your skin. Your talent is your talent. I, I want to really touch base on that because I know that's a really passionate focus for you. But you're a filmmaker, you're a speaker, and you're an actor. Is your filmmaking, is there other stuff out there? Because I know you're working on a docu-series about this story right now. Yeah, right now um, we're putting together putting together some stuff to get, the, get a docu-series rolling. Originally, the idea was to do a documentary, which may still happen, but there's so much um, history and accomplishments um, concerning Hattie that, you know, a one or two hour documentary, we probably wouldn't be able to scratch the surface. I guess like most, you know, documentary subjects, it's it's really hard to really tap into 
all the things that that they that a person has done over a lifetime or or a career. Yeah. What what are some of the film projects you've worked on? Well, you know, when I started out acting, you know, I, I grew up in Texas, but I was born in Los Angeles and I returned to Los Angeles in 2001 and I was actually working with this this company and they were downsized and getting ready to go out of business and I was like wow, they're, they're, they're firing three people a week. What am I going to do? Because I'm going to be next at some point. And it, the company went from 70 people down to 15. I was still there. I was one of the big 15. And I said, you know what? I'll go act. And I hadn't done that. In, I, I hadn't done that in a while. I had a little, a little money saved up. So if I, if I didn't do well, you know, I could give it a, you know, try it out for a few months to see what happened. And so I went to, you know, uh, central casting and was, I was doing the extra stuff and maybe a weekend, about seven days into it, I got a call from central casting and they said, hey, you know, um, we have this show that that's going on and, and they liked your look. And it's it's going into a second season. It's a little, you know, you know, and I said, well, what's the name of the show? And she said, 24. And I said, I never heard of it. And um, so. I went to the set and had a good time, you know, just do some stuff in a uniform CTU of the, um, you know, the central um, terrorist unit. And, you know, I'd be with Kiefer because I was supposed to be his bodyguard, Kiefer Sutherland and um, one of his um, guards and stuff. And so I did that for a whole year, just just in the background, hanging out, getting some screen time, doing some little um, minor stunts here and there. And it was sometime around that that point. I. I was having this feeling of ah, this is this is great. It's fun. But I feel like I want to create something of my own. And my father was already working on Hattie. He had been working on a Hattie project for years, but it never came to fruition. So when he when he got Parkinson's disease before he passed away, I knew I was going to take the project and do something. And I didn't know what it was going to what it was going to be. So here we are. Fast forward years later, these things take tons of time to even try to to put all the parts together and the funding. So here we are, and we're starting to actually get some traction on some things and talking about the docuseries. So we're excited. So what's, so tell us a bit about the story here. I mean, I, almost everybody I know has seen Gone with the Wind. It's such a classic. What was really the story behind this? She was up for an Oscar, right? For supporting actress or? Supporting, yes. Yeah, you know, the thing was in the, in the beginning as as the movie wrapped up, no one even had an inkling or idea. I'm sure she didn't that a nomination would be in the future. It, you know, it hadn't happened before for a black performer. So but was this her the, first, was this her first movie she's ever done? No, no. She had done a few films before that. And mostly the roles were comedic, you know, had a little comedic, you know, flavor to them. So this was her first dramatic, really seriously dramatic role. So of course, when she, when she went to that audition, she was nervous thinking, you know, I want to pull this off. And Gone with the Wind was already the talk of the town. You know, the book had been out for a few years. And this this particular epic movie with MGM was going to be the, I believe, the biggest budget movie. It was huge. It was everybody was waiting on this thing. So Hattie, you know, she's like, OK, I got to go to this audition. I don't know how this is going to work out. Everybody was lobbying for this part. Eleanor Roosevelt wanted her maid to play the part I read. So people were showing up at audition, some in fur coats. And Hattie said, you know, I'm going to show up in character. So she showed up in a full maid, you know, you know, outfit and blew them away. They they were like, she's she's it's her part. 
And it did help that Clark Gable was like, I want her to have the part because <laughs> yeah. her and Clark Gable were, were really good friends. They had worked on um, two previous films together before Gone to Win, so they knew each other already very well. And he wanted her to have the part. Being Crosby apparently was like, hey, she's he, he wrote a re- recommendation for her to have the part. So with her great audition performance, I mean, that all those all those things kind of sealed it. So there was no no doubt that the part was hers. But the the sorority Sigma Gamma Rho, they were petitioning and lobbying also for her to to get nominated. They said she deserves a nomination. She was amazing. She, you know, and she was nominated. And now did she think she was gonna win? Did anybody take her seriously? I don't think so, because a lot of people were shocked. But it was a, the start of something of getting your foot in the door. You know, uh, when you're a pioneer, when you're doing something first, it's never easy. It's not an easy thing usually. It's usually yeah. you went through some stuff, you you know, if you're blazing a trail like Lewis and Clark or something, I'm sure that wasn't easy, you know. <laughs> so uh, this this had to be a, not just a passion thing and she loved performing, but it also had to be from her heart to fight through all those things and those barriers of the time. I've got a question about Patty. You, you said she showed up in full maid gear for the audition. But the thing is, is that Hattie always had the work because of all ironic things is that she's appearing in a movie about the Civil War and her father was actually injured during the Civil War. Right. Yeah. Her father. I mean, you know, when I think about this, it's mind blowing. He he's born into slavery, as was his wife, Susan, goes to fight for his country, gets injured, had to petition and fight to get his pension after the war for decades. I mean. By the time he did get a pension, and it was a reduced pension, it wasn't even a full pension, you know, and it, and it was because he was he was a, a black person, and he, they just didn't want to give it to him. And, yeah, he finally got the pension, and I think it was like half of what it should have been, and maybe, I think he died like maybe a few years later. So, you know, that's, that's kind of a really ironic thing to fight for your country, even after being born and, you know, being enslaved. And then after you fight for your country, they don't want to pay you. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh! And now Hattie, see, now Hattie and her siblings—they're—they're they're seeing this unfold before them within the family. After the war, Henry is still going to work. He's probably fifty or sixty percent of what he used to be as as far as his physicality, and he's still going to work. He's doing labor jobs, and Hattie's watching this. And imagine you're—you're you're like you're thinking this guy is Superman. Nothing can stop him. But at the same time, you—you you had to be anguished watching this unfold watching his life unfold this way and i think that's the thing that gave her the resolve and why she won that oscar i think that's a big part of it because she had a lot of doors closed in her face during her hollywood journey it wasn't like she walked on set and instantly got a film she had to audition 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 i mean she got those uncredited many uncredited starting parts but to start working with Mae West and and Clark Gable and Tallulah Bankhead, yeah, Errol, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that's another story, right? Errol <laughs> Flynn, I mean, I mean, and and her brother Sam and her sister Etta were were working at the same time. Apparently, they did a thousand films between them, and they didn't get credit for all of them, but they were all busy during that time. So she won the Oscar. Just for our listeners, she was allowed to go to the Oscars to accept her award, but she wasn't allowed to the premiere. Do I have that correct? Or yeah, the 
the premiere came first. I believe that was December 1939. I think it was like a three-day huge ceremony. Everybody was there. And the black cast were not, you know, they didn't want the black cast there at the premiere. Clark Gable was incensed. He was infuriated. And the story is he, he was like, well, I'm not going, I'm going to boycott the film myself. I'm, I'm not going. And Hattie, you know, and this is how you can see how unselfish she was. She's like, look, Clark, this is your film. Um, the only win is you. You know, she's giving him all the credit. She's like, you need to be there. You, you can't. You can't miss this. You have to be there. So he talked her into it. And, and, and she's talking him into going while she's being denied going. That is the most amazing thing. But the ironic part is there was a black choir there as part of the entertainment. And in that choir was a 10 or a, maybe it was 11 years old. A 10 year or 11 year old Martin Luther King was in the choir at the premiere. And he was only able to get there because they were like entertainment, background entertainment yeah. and so forth. So it's ironic that she couldn't be at her own film. And of course, you, you fast forward a few months later to the Oscars in Los Angeles at the Ambassador uh, Hotel. And she has to sit in the back of the room at a separate table away from her peers in the movie. You know, Olivia de Havilland and Vivian Lee and the rest of the cast are at a table near the front. She's sitting with the back with um, her escort and I believe her agent at the time. I think his last name was Micklejohn. So, I mean... Being in the in the in the present right now, you look at that and you go, "Oh my God, that's devastating. That has to be devastating." But I'm I'm sure also at that time, being a black person, you were used to those things, and maybe you weren't used to them. It's kind of like a a double edged sword kind of thing. You're you're going through these things, these discriminatory things, but at the same time, you know that's kind of the way it is, and you're biting the bullet. And I'm sure she bit a lot of bullets during that time. That's amazing. Do you think that? I mean, you're an actor now, so. Do you think, given the industry, that that definitely was a prominent time to open up the doors for colored actors and actresses that was more accepted? Do you think that was that pivotal point in time where that turned in Hollywood? I think the gods and things aligned for it to be that time. I think it, it, could, it could have been 10 years earlier or 10 years later. It just happened to be all these forces, for lack of a better word, lined up. This gone with the wind. And this particular film needed people of color in it, which was kind of like, okay, that there was an opportunity there for her. And make no mistake, she wanted the part. She was excited to get the part. And even though she she knew that it wasn't going to be a leading role, did she ever get a leading role? I mean, no. I mean, unless you count the show Beulah, which was at the end of her career. So, but she knew it was an opportunity to make a step forward, some type of progress. And I'm sure she was thinking, well, I, I'm I'm receiving some benefit from this by being in this movie, but I'm not going to receive all the benefit and accolades that I should. I'm not going to receive scripts are not going to be delivered to me saying, Hattie, we want, you know, I mean, that wasn't going to happen. One of the amazing things I think about is in films after Gone with the Wind, you know, she's an Oscar winner and you see films after that, that she's in and she's in a scene in the kitchen and she's serving a family breakfast. And the family's white and she's black. And you're looking at that scene and you're going, she's the only Oscar winner in the scene. And she's not even the main character. She's just kind of like this background character, this afterthought. But she's the Oscar winner. How would that feel? That, Like if you go to a job and you, you have all the credentials, but they want you to go get the coffee. <laughs> you know, I mean, that had, to, that had to sting. But yet she kept pushing forward. Because I'm sure she's thinking back to her dad 
and her mom and what they went through. And she's thinking, this ain't half bad. My father, you know, had bombs exploding in his face. <laughs> you know, he lived with shrapnel in his, in, his, in, his, in his mouth and, you know, for the rest of his life. So I'm sure she's thinking, he went through that. He went through that to take care of his family. I can do this. I can plant a seed today, hoping that it will blossom for someone else down the road. But at the same time, the NAACP, I'm sorry, I'm thinking the sports here, but NAACP <laughs> was critical of her accepting those roles. Right. You know what? That's to me, that's unfortunate. I was talking to someone um, recently and and my comment was I thought it was the wrong move because the problem wasn't Hattie. The problem was the industry. I mean, she could only do what she could do. There, there were no alternatives in Hollywood as far as what type of role she was going to receive. If you were um, a black performer, you were either a butler, a maid, or you were a slave in the movie, or you were a train porter. That's probably it. You know, the, yeah. the opportunities were few, few and far between. So she was playing the hand that was there, you know, at the time. And she said many times she wanted to be a beacon, not just a beacon um, for the industry, but a beacon for, for, for black people to try to prosper and move ahead and get those same opportunities. So, I mean, I'm sure Sydney Portier is like thankful. I mean, you, you hear a lot of black performers since her that said, you know, they thanked her and white performers, too. They were, you know, it was like it was a hard road, but she never gave up. She never had the, the thought to give up. It just wasn't in her to give up. So. I mean, this is a woman who's entertaining the troops during World War II. So she was a patriot as well. And so think of that, even with all the discrimination going on in the world, hey, I'm going to go entertain the troops. I'm going to raise war bonds for the army efforts. That's pretty, that's pretty darn courageous and, and, and a selfless act. Yeah. And so and you're doing a documentary on this, the whole history of her through this, right? Well, it's, it's, it's going to be a, a docu-series and at some point, you know, it'll be, it'll be beautiful. Who knows how, you know, maybe a film project will, uh, will come up. I mean, there's, there's always talk of a film happening. There's one supposedly in development. But there, is, there are so many things that, that I want to see happen for her and, and the Mc, other McDaniels that, that entertain that I would like to see a library of information and resources created so people are more aware of these things that they did. And we're talking before, before Hollywood Hattie was, was doing things. She was in radio. So she was accomplished before she even set foot on a, a Hollywood set. I mean, it's definitely worth the docuseries. It sounds like the family in general has done some tremendous stuff, pushed forward through all the discrimination to set boundaries and to set an example for other people. So I think it's more of an educational docuseries to give like, you know, like a motivation, inspire other color people don't give up. Don't not do something. Don't, don't follow your dream just because of what's going on out there. And I, I love that you have everybody from, you know, from her, her father has all had that same trajectory of you still, the random acts of kindness, no matter what, are still what's important on a daily basis. Yeah, I, I it's inspiring to me. And, you know, of course, I never had the chance to meet her because she passed like 11 years before I was born. My father would tell me stories because, um, she would babysit my father. My father was actually unofficially was was actually Hattie's kid because she never had kids of her own. 
And um, she took to my father. And when he would be over her house, she didn't want to give him up when it was time for him to go. She, they had to pry my father from her hands. And um, and that was a great disappointment in her life that she couldn't have kids. There was a point where she thought she was pregnant and it turned out to be um, a false pregnancy. And she was devastated by that. And I, I, I know for when a woman wants to to have a child and, and create a life and she can't, that that has to be devastating. I can't speak on it from experience, of course. I mean, it's just women are amazing. <laughs> women are amazing. I say, and it's another reason why I'm so amped up about Patty and anything to do with her, uh, because it, it just reminded me how incredible my mother was and how all women are. You know, you do a thousand things. You might get credit for two or three. But you're doing you're you're juggling all these things. So because we're better, we're better at multitasking than guys are. I, I I'm I just agree. gonna say it. Yeah, say it. Say we're it. We're better, way better at multitasking than men. Preach, preach. But <laughs> 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 well, I mean, look at me, look at it. I mean, there's, there's now there's women sportscasters now. I mean, there's this yeah. let's just be honest. I mean, I'm not gonna get to the whole politics, but you know, Kamala Harris is our first, you know, female vice president. I mean, it's just I just think. I don't know. I just think women are better at multitasking and I don't know what it is, but I just think it's not a role gender thing. I just think we think differently. I think women, this is really yeah. bad. I'm getting so much trouble. Not that they're more sympathetic yeah. and empathetic of people, but I think they just, there's more of that nurturing, caring sides where if I'm taking care of this and I want that to be good and I want to make sure you're taking care of, I think we're better at multitasking hands down. Let's just like give the Oscar for multitasking to women. And let me open the envelope. And the winner for multitasking, <laughs> women. Thank you. <laughs> Was there any saying, doubt? I don't know which one's a sportscaster on this podcast right now. Between the two of you, I have a voice of God's coming in every direction. I am just being a sponge right now. I want to emulate and absorb all the greatness that everybody else has, and and squeeze all that out at the end of the day when I'm alone and, and just kind of put it all over myself like lotion and then see what happens. Well, but I think so. My whole, it's so funny you said that because I always thought given the whole past, I mean, we got, I know Joe has a big question here, but given the past year we've had, I always assumed personally that people can be more empathetic, sympathetic, kinder, nicer, random acts of kindness, unjudgmental, unconditional, because we're all fighting in this together on every level, financially, mentally, physically, families getting sick, not being able to be with people you need to. But I'm realizing, and no filter, that people are just bigger assholes right now than they ever were before. And I can't figure this out. It's just crazy. So I think every day, like this is a Joe and I always talk about this actually all the time. Every time we do a podcast, because I did this, created this, you know, Media Mavens was born during COVID in the summer. And every single guest we have had on and i'm not kidding from sports to space to tech to entertainment ai yeah you name it always regardless of who they are always walk away knowing something better than i did walking into the podcast because you just you're you're talking to people and the reason why we don't do filters and we don't have all this editing crap because i think it's everybody's at home on their zooms and baseball hats t-shirts whatever it's authentic it's real it's not the bullshit out at events and out in public trying to impress people. It is authentically you and everybody really talks about what's important. And we, I learned so much and just gained so much more knowledge and kindness from every single podcast person we've had on our show. Right. Yeah. You know what? I, I, I think that in moments of, you know, when a, when a country or whatever that 
thing is when when there's some adversity in life or something traumatic or catastrophic is going on, I think that's when people show who they really, really are. And that could be good or bad. If you're if you're really a compassionate and nurturing and thoughtful person, that's what's going to come to the surface. If you're full of anger and if your mindset is misguided and, and you're a person that wants to kick a cat down the street, then that's that's going to come to the surface. I think these moments in history show which side of the spectrum a, a person is on. You're You're either that person who will reach out and pull someone up, or you're the person that you're going to put a knee on their neck. Well, you know what they say, it, which is a whole other discussion of podcasts <laughs> right yeah. now with that thing. But what's interesting is that I, I always feel that we'll get Joe, and we got to get you the airtime here, is that <laughs> <laughs> Joe needs the mic, is that I feel like when people are at their very, very worst, it's a true sign of their character and who they are as an individual based on how they treat people and how they act. At their very worst, it's a true sign of who you are. To your, and that, that's just always what I believed in. You know? Yeah, I think, yeah. I think you perform to who you are internally, what your spirit is. And um, individuals can fake how they really feel on the, you know, on the surface. But when things kind of get, come to crunch time, like in, in a game, you know, when it's crunch time, you'll see who has that extra gear to take that team over the top or the person that doesn't have that extra gear, who can't make that shot, who can't, go between two defenders and, and th- hit that puck into the net or who can't make that three-pointer with 0.7 seconds on the clock with one eye open and getting fouled. Or, you know, so I think in, in crunch time, you see who, who has the mentality to do a certain thing or, or they don't have it. Back to you, Joe. Yes, okay. Joe. Yes. Okay. <laughs> That was for you, Joe. Joey. Good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a, a question about her Oscar. I mean, I know that uh, she won the Oscar, but it wasn't, was it a plaque and then it ended up missing? Yeah. And, you know, the award for supporting actors at that time, leading up to that time, was a plaque. It was still considered an Oscar, but the, the lead actors and actresses would get the statue. The supporting actors would get the plaque. Shortly, I think a few years after Hattie won the Oscar, they decided to give everyone the statue. So she she didn't receive the actual statue. It was it was the I can't remember how how big the plaque was, but but yeah, they they did make a change. I think maybe three or four years later, I could be wrong on like the four, 45, maybe somewhere around there. But yeah, and you know, of course, speaking of the Oscar, we were talking about Martin Luther King. And he plays a pivotal role in what would end up happening to her Oscar, which would eventually become missing. And so imagine this. It's 1939 and you're at the Atlanta premiere and Hattie can't attend, but Martin Luther King can as a as an 11-year-old choir member. Yeah. And then almost 30 years later, that same little boy is assassinated in Memphis and there is a riots and chaos throughout the United States and two of the cities that were most you know, hit the hardest were Chicago and D.C. Mm-hmm. Now, D.C. happens to be the place where Hattie's Oscar was because she left it to Howard University. Mm-hmm. So sometime after the riots, no one knows exactly for sure, between 68 and maybe 71, the Oscar vanishes. It hasn't been seen since. Wait, it was open from the university? It disappeared from the university. Yeah. 
there are theories two or three lights. One guy at the time said, I threw it in the in the Potomac Lake. It could have been destroyed in the fires. You know, the buildings were in fires. There was looting, chaos. Um, the National Guard was there. You know, it was it was a lot of, a lot going on. So it could have been destroyed or it's sitting in someone's basement in a box and they don't even know it's there. Or, I mean, it hasn't showed up on eBay. <laughs> so, I mean, if it, if it, it hasn't showed up on eBay yet, then um, I'm assuming it was destroyed. Or someone has it, and or it's somewhere, and they don't even realize what it is because it doesn't look like your typical Oscar. That you know, you look at it and go, "Oh, that's not a." You're not thinking Oscar, maybe. So yeah, so we're talking at least fifty years that it's been missing. And I know that other actors who have had, you know, their Oscars go missing because of theft or whatever. How is that going? You know, it hasn't. The the Oscar hasn't been replaced. I I'm sure that the Academy they have some sympathies as far as doing the right thing. Um, I mean, yeah, there have been some Oscars that have been replaced. Mm-hmm. I believe one actress in recent time, no, I think she was a director. She won for Best Director for The Hurt Locker. Her name was Catherine. Catherine, yeah, she, James Cameron's ex-wife. Yeah, she dropped, apparently her little daughter dropped the Oscar and it broke and they, I think they replaced it. They said, oh, yeah. don't worry, we'll, we'll fix that for you. So I'm thinking at that moment, I'm like, well, shouldn't you replace Hattie's Oscar? Because yeah. that's been 50 years and that's a really historic thing. Have you I mean, contacted the Academy and said, hey? I, yeah, I've, I, I've had a conversation with um, the Academy. Other people have petitioned, it, but it hasn't happened yet. Why? I'm, you know, I'm not sure, but it, uh, as of now, it has not happened yet. I think we should go Mike Wallace on the Academy and bring him on to a podcast. <laughs> Actually, we probably could get them on. And then, by the way, where's Hattie's yeah. award? God damn it. I mean, but I think actually Academy probably would want to talk given the year we've had. But there is supposedly, a, what was it? The whole Me Too movement. They did make a lot of strides to make some changes. A lot of people were um, rallying and saying, we need more, you know, colored people. You know, it's it's all there's not one black presenter, which wasn't true. I mean, everybody just got so up in arms as soon as the whole Me Too thing hit with what's his face. I totally don't even remember his name, which is clearly he's not the big producer guy on the whole sex scandal. And the thing is, though. Oh, Weinstein. Weinstein. Weinstein yeah. And yeah, so yeah. they just had at that point, we're going to make a difference. It's not it's all about you know, the women have a say, you know, there's going to be more black presenters, more people in there and actors. And they, they kept doing this whole big thing politically. But have they really done anything? I don't really think there's been a change. I think it is political. And I, you know, there is a board, but there we talk about leadership and making change. Leadership comes from the top down. Mm-hmm. And we've seen some great leadership this past year, especially more than ever, getting the company, the client, getting consumers through this together. But has the academy really made good in a lot of their promises. I mean, the most recent ones, as well as in the past, I, I just not bashing the Academy because, you know, I got to get my awards, but right, uh, right, the, right. but I really don't know if there has been. Uh, I, when you say you're going to make a change, it takes a village. It takes a team. It takes a community. I mean, not the bash in Hollywood, but I honestly have not seen a lot of that since this whole thing happened a few years ago. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, like there's been, public outcry. I, I I had a friend who contacted the Academy about having the Oscar replaced and they said to him, they wrote him a letter and they said, well, that's not something we do, but here, have some postage stamps. And yeah, he showed me the letter. Oh, he, it, I, it was legit. It, and, and they gave him a book of Hattie stamps, you know, because she received her own postage stamp in 2006. Um, I was there at the ceremony in Beverly Hills at the time. And 
And, you know, I know they are very open on, on the surface about their support of trailblazers and communities of color. I think sometimes sometimes there has to be a bigger incentive. I, you know, you, you would think that what's been going on creates an incentive. It's unfortunate that something like civil strife and unrest has to be the thing that makes a person even consider to do something else, which is the reason why we have civil strife and unrest, because things historically haven't been done at certain times and for certain people and in certain ways. So it's, it's really ironic that another episode of something tragic has to happen for a person or a company or an entity to say, hey, you know what, let's get on top of this. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, you know, in that, in that sense, when you look at it that way, it's like, yeah, but, you know, do we have to have people die for to have someone make a decision that, you know, you should have made all along? So that's kind of a, a bitter, bitter pill to swallow. Let's get on to something a little more positive. Later. Believe it or not, that I'm in, I mean, I know exactly what you're saying and I, and I empathize with it. And I think that, you know, I think there should be a push to get that Oscar replaced and given to you since you're fighting for it. But the, you know, I'm, I'm in Tucson, Arizona right now. I didn't know that she got married in Tucson, Arizona one time <laughs> in 1941. And then she also got married in Yuma, Arizona in 49. Yeah, I, you know, it's something, I guess it's something about Arizona. Uh, and oh, there I goes, think he fell, and off, there, fell off. And there goes our dead air. That was the worst thing on radio. So they say dead air. You yeah. can't have dead air. So until we get Kevin back, should we like, like have a commercial break? Let's have a commercial break. Two, two, two. No, seriously. I mean, what, like, I love that you did all of this research on her. Thanks. And everything. I, it's outstanding. I just, I, I do. I mean, I know we can't get very heavy in a lot of these, a lot of these podcasts and stuff, but I feel like, like what Kevin was talking about, it's so good to kind of talk about the real situations we're yes. dealing with. I agree. And, and I, I, I'd like to keep it real. I mean, I, I do like to do that, but that was just one thing I noticed in, in her biography that that she was married in Tucson, Arizona. I just like I had I had to bring that up. That's so funny. I love it. So I am going to put this podcast on technical difficulties right now to get Kevin back because this is such an amazing conversation that um, we definitely want to finish. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, Subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider or on the Evergreen Podcast Network. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.